This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Growing up in a small town, I didn't really think of rock and roll as like a white space or anything. There's a niche for telling these stories around the time I grew up that's not really being filled on YouTube. Rock and roll is so far reaching that it can unite people who may be politically divided or whatever, but they can form a great community over their love of music or art or whatever. What's been great about my channel is I don't try to take sides. I've covered some pretty controversial topics, but I try to just tell the story and let people decide for themselves. My name's Sid Masson, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow. But we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Sid Masand, a YouTuber from Canada who runs the channel Rock and Roll True Stories, which you really need to check out. Like, <laughs> stop listening to this podcast. Go subscribe to Sid's channel. It's way better, way it's more funny. interesting. I feel like this is another one where I just kind of took the back seat here because, Roman, you know so much more about rock and roll than I do. Once in a while, you guys would say, like, Ozzy. I'm like, I know him. Ozzy Osbourne or, like, Metallica. Cool. Totally know who they are. And, like, the other 90% of the names that you you guys covered today, I, no clue. Makes me feel like I have to listen to more music. <laughs> well, I, I have two great loves in this life uh, that I'm not related to, and uh, they are comic books and rock and roll. And while I do have a secret comic book podcast, I do not have a secret rock and roll YouTube channel because Sid made one already. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, uh, Sid reached out to us, and he's a minority creator. He's, like he says, he's an East Indian kid from the other side of the tracks. He didn't grow up around a lot of other Indian kids, kind of like me. Yeah. And, like me, that's what led to, you know, like if you go meet a bunch of Indian people and I'm going to stereotype, sorry, all Indian Americans, they listen to hip hop and rap. They don't listen to rock the way I listen to rock. And probably part of the reason I did it was because I didn't grow up around a lot of Indian kids. I grew up in Alabama, right? Mm -hmm. So be it Skinner, Creedence Clearwater, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, like these were like the anthems. And so he went off and became an engineer and then on the side decided to build a YouTube channel to talk about his passion, which I mean, he's doing quite well for himself, Sharon. He's doing really well. He's got over 100,000 subscribers on his channel. He makes quite a bit of money. I don't know if we're allowed to reveal that, but enough to, for like a full-time income, literally. But he remains a side hustle still for now, and he's got great stories to share. So it was a really, really great conversation with Sid. Yeah, I think you're going to enjoy it. Sid, welcome to the pod. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I was telling you earlier that it's rare that I get to talk to people who grew up on the same side of the tracks as me. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a fun one. So you're kind of infamous for all of your conversations about more famous people. But I guess, can you tell us a story about who you were before this whole journey began? Yeah, like I had a really different upbringing from a lot of East Indian kids. Like my parents are both from India and they immigrated to America and Canada in the seventies. And I took a traditional path of like, you know, get good grades, go to college, and then you live off that one job and you're happy for the rest of your life. Right. And, you know, I graduated in 09, the first class of the rate, the financial crisis. And it was really brutal economy where I live. Oil is big, but it was really bad. It was suffering a lot that, that sector. And I worked as an engineer for like seven years and I thought my entire life would be that. And just going through the whole corporate world and not getting jobs and just going to interview after interview and having my destiny controlled by someone else. I really didn't like that. So I wanted to become an entrepreneur. Wow. So you bucked the system. You didn't do the doctor or lawyer thing for mom and dad. My parents never wanted me to be a 
doctor, lawyer, but I didn't even know what I wanted to to do. They didn't really give me direction. They just said, do something that makes you money, basically. (laughs) So basically, doctor. That's really the root of it, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it's basically doctor, lawyer, engineer, and maybe business if you haven't need a backup plan. But yeah, it was just weird. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my dad was a civil engineer and he worked in different small towns and municipalities in Canada. And I kind of, I thought engineering sounded cool, but I didn't know what it was. So I said, I'll just do that. And I almost got kicked out of school in my first year because I didn't take it seriously. And then I kind of straightened myself out and like started to do really well. And I graduated, but I mean, I worked as a project manager most of my life and I loved it, but I'm a really driven person and I'm very individualistic in the sense of, I like to be given a task and just run with it and I make things happen. But when you work in a very bureaucratic and, and like structured environment, it's very hard to be that kind of person. You get very frustrated easily. And for me, I mean, I'm dealing with anxiety too. That's not a good combination. Well, you mentioned this earlier, you kind of grew up in a small town in Canada, which I grew up in the suburbs of Alabama, but definitely didn't, I wasn't surrounded by that many Asian kids. Or if I did, it was when I was playing tennis, you know? (laughs) Right. I mean, can you describe the town you grew up in? Yeah, I grew up in a town called Edson. It was two hours west of Edmonton. It's kind of perfectly situated because it's halfway between the mountains and Edmonton. And so you're really close to nature. It's a town of about 8,000 people. My dad grew up living, I mean, he spent his early adult years in different small towns being the town engineer. And I wasn't, there weren't a lot of visible minorities where I grew up. I think we were one of two or three Asian, South Asian families. It wasn't until after I left Edson and, you know, now there's a lot of more East Indian families that moved in and Middle Eastern families, but it was really difficult because I grew up during the eighties and nineties and God, I mean, there was nobody who looked like me, but my parents never really harped on the fact that we were Indian. So I integrated pretty quickly, but I also dealt with a lot of pretty bad racism. And uh, how got so? to the, yeah, how well, so? I, m- I remember my brother is seven years older than me. My mom had to walk him to school every day and we lived right across from the school because people pick fights with them. And back then oh, teachers no. didn't care about bullying. They're like, oh, your kids are being bullied. Well, too bad. And that's what it was like. And then when I went to school, People would say racist stuff to me. I used to get beaten up. I remember the cops had to get involved and like come and talk to our class when I was in grade six. It was pretty bad. And then once I got out of grade six, it almost seemed like all that stuff ended. I didn't deal with it anymore. And people were kind of, I was kind of being treated a lot better. Well, can, can like, I ask a question? So this sure. would have been, you're about five or six years younger than me. So this would have been in the early 2000s. Well, this would have been like 1990, when was I in grade six? It would have been 1998, 1997. So the reason I ask is, I'm just going to direct less. You're of Indian descent. Are you Sikh? No, my mom is Punjabi and my dad is Sindhi. Okay. But we're not Sikh on his side. Yeah. Yeah. We're, uh, the question is like, where was the racism coming from? Is it you're just a brown kid and yeah, you're just, just trying to package the 9-11? Yeah. No, this was before. And not, yeah, 99, right? I never really... Except going to the airport. Yeah. But I mean, of course. (laughs) But no, it was just like, oh, you're a brown kid and you look different. And it was just weird stuff, that kind of stuff that really brought it out because I looked different. But my parents never made me feel like I was different. And maybe because they assimilated really well. Can you imagine in the 70s and 80s being the only South Asian and being the town engineer and you look different, but then you have to know all the stuff about the town and deal with people's complaints? Yeah. Anytime I complain about having it hard, I'm like, yeah, my parents had thick accents and didn't have the internet. I've got it yeah. easy by comparison. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of it just came from the fact that I was different. But it was so weird growing up. And, and then when I left Edson to go to the Edmonton where I live now and go to university, I thought that I would be able to relate to a lot of the East Indian kids I met, but I couldn't. I grew up on a different side of the tracks. All my friends growing up were were Caucasian. There were some Asians where I grew up too, I was friends with and Aboriginals too. But when I came to start talking to the Indian kids in university, we didn't like the same kind of music. We had different views of the world. (laughs) Oh, I got called everything. You know, it's funny. I got the racist stuff from people I went to school with because I was different. But then the Indian kids would say, oh, you're like a coconut or something because you rock and roll. You're supposed to listen to hip hop and you don't eat Indian food and that kind of stuff. This is literally the only reason you're on the podcast. Because like, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. man, being into Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Blind Lemon and... (laughs) Yeah, Just you guys like would have been you guys would have been buddies if you were No, but it, but it's like you couldn't fit in with it. There was like a, a moment in time where while in engineering school, I did a co-op in another town which we had some family friends who were Indian. And so I hung out with them and all of their friends. And I just in this bigger Indian community, I was the only guy who cared about Weezer 
or Toad yeah. the Sprocket. And I was the weirdo for wearing that shirt to the hip hop party, I guess. Yeah, it's weird. Like, even I get told, I listen to like Leonard Skinner and stuff like Southern yeah, Rock, yeah. and they're like, you yeah, don't yeah. listen to that. That's like racist music. That's in my East Indian, like people I'd meet in the college would tell me. And, and it was just so weird because my parents never dwelled on race. And I never viewed, even though I got bullied, I never viewed the world through that kind of lens. So I always tell people that I'm glad I grew up in a small town because it got me to where I am today. And I don't think I would have had as much success had I not gone through all that stuff in my life. Hmm. And so I'm so curious about YouTube and how you started all of that as well, because your parents said, we don't care what you do, just do something that makes money. Yeah, basically. I'm old enough to remember when YouTube wasn't a monetization platform. It was really just a place where people were putting videos. And it is mind-blowing how... YouTubers can really be professional YouTubers, content creators now. So how did you how did you end up there? So I had graduated in 2009 and I had worked as an engineer for a couple of years at that point. And I still have my job. I'm still an engineer. I work two jobs pretty much. But it was funny when I started my career, I had only worked with my dad during the summers. Like I had a similar co-op kind of experience, but I would just work with my dad. My dad's the kind of engineer who'd like, he's a jack of all trades. And I learned so much from him. And I thought that when I worked with him, that all engineers must be super smart like him. Like the school is really hard. And then I started working in the workforce and I started to realize like, I kind of, I didn't feel as proud to be an engineer because when you graduated, everything is very solid. Like you're an engineer, you're going to focus on doing one thing and that's what you're going to be good at. Whereas my dad had to be good at everything because he was a town engineer. So I started to kind of be like, oh, it's, I don't, I didn't feel as excited to be an engineer. And then second of all, when I started working, a lot of my coworkers were getting promoted over me and they were getting promoted like at such a young age. But then when I went through job interviews, I just struggled to get promoted and it just irked me. I have to rely on someone else who is not any smarter than me to dictate whether I'm worthy of a promotion and my work speaks for itself. But unless you play the game and you're buddy, buddy with the right person, or they like you personality wise, then you're not going to get ahead. And I was just, I'm like, I don't want to give 30 years to this place. I want to just have my own ship and really have freedom in my life. My dad always harked on like having freedom in his life and how important it was. And anything that comes along with that, whether it's money or anything else is great. So that's kind of what led me to YouTube. Well, it's interesting. Right before we started recording, we're talking about being on camera or not being on camera. Yeah. But I like to hide behind this microphone and tell Sharon to take my face off the front of the podcast (laughs) all the time. But In your space, we're talking about conversations of race and gender and being different, but you're talking about rock music. One of my two great loves in the world is comic books and rock music, right? So it's a pretty white space. I'm sorry, lots of brown guys. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be clear, there's an awesome metal movement in India, which I'm not familiar with or have a Should maybe do a story on it one day. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You're going to hook me up with those musicians, right? But to talk to you, but how did you get over that? How did you just walk into a pretty white space. You, you don't work at Pitchfork. You don't work at Rolling Stone. You don't work at Spin. Yeah. It's kind of funny because I don't really put my face on camera. So whenever I do ha- do interviews, I usually promote it on my channel. And then the first thing people say is, wow, you look nothing like I expected. I, th- I was expecting a dude with long hair who is white, who lives in his mom's basement or something. And you're like, nah, man, I record from my own basement. I record, from, <laughs> I record in my closet because like the, the sound dampening is great. It's funny because I like I said, growing up in a small town, I didn't really think of it as like a white space or anything. I'm like, I think there's a niche for telling these certain stories around the time I grew up that's not really being filled on YouTube. And I want to try that. But now we were talking earlier, I'm going to start showing my face on camera. That does come in the back of my mind. How do people receive it? Because you're not your stereotypical person. But I think it also shows people like, wow, rock and roll is so far reaching that it can unite people who may be politically divided or whatever it may be, but they can form over a great community over their love of music or art or whatever it may be. And I mean, I think that's what's been great about my channel is I don't try to take sides. I try to just tell the story and let people decide for themselves. And I think my audience appreciates that. I've covered some pretty controversial topics and I don't try to lecture people. Like if I did one on like this Guns N' Roses song, One in a Million, which is like hugely controversial back in the 80s. But I mean- one person's interpretation is completely different from another person's, but I don't feel right telling people how to think. It's They should make that decision for themselves based on the evidence. Do you have an editorial take on some of these things, though, and why don't you use it? The only thing I like to give editorial takes on is censorship in music. I mean, it's kind of funny when you read the 80s and 90s how big censorship was. Like, 
you know, they used to put those parental advisory stickers on records and you had the PMRC. <laughs> and, you know, to me, it's almost seems like it just helped album sales. Like if you were a kid back then, you saw that sticker, <laughs> like, oh, I got to listen to this record. So I look at it that way, but I only talk about music censorship and that kind of stuff and how I think, you know, artists should be allowed to express themselves, whether you disagree with it or not. So that's the only thing I editorialize. Anything else, people can make a decision for themselves. I think people are, you know, you watch the news cycles these days and everything is so biased. I think people want to have something that tries to give both sides of the story. And we try to do that as best as we can. Is it just you? Like, what's the team? Oh, the team. Oh, well, I mean, I do a majority of the writing and all the recording is my voice, of course. But I also have two editors who help me put the videos together. They're doing a lot of the shorter videos. I'm doing a lot of these longer videos. 10 minutes plus. And then my, my wife's the operations manager and we joke, she's like my manager. <laughs> she <laughs> keeps scheduling my, my yeah. calendar and stuff and doing appointments. And she always says that she's the manager of the talent. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's about, and then we also have a virtual assistant. So we have a team of like four or five people. And then you know, now we have an accountant and we, you know, we have a lawyer we talk to and we need to and that kind of stuff. So it's for the majority, it's four to five people. Do you ever feel like you have to pretend to be somebody else or hide any part of you? I feel more like that at work. Like I didn't, the job I work at, I didn't tell people the I day had job. YouTube thing. Yeah, the day job. Because you can have a second job, but you just can't like have an engineering com- company that conflicts with your daily job. I feel like that part of me was kind of hiding. I always get asked by some of my coworkers, like, why haven't you moved up in this organization? And I was like, well, in my back of my head, I'm like, well, I have a YouTube channel. I don't need to. I can walk away from this job at any point. And that's what's great. But that's what I feel like I've mostly been hiding. And also the fact that I don't show my face on camera. I feel like, yeah, maybe people would have a different reaction once they see my face and stuff like that. This is a weird way to ask this question. Are you more like Clark Kent or Bruce Wayne? Because Superman is actually Clark Kent. He just, his secret, he happens to be Superman, right? (laughs) Right. Versus, Versus Bruce Wayne is a shell. He's really Batman. He's really that driven. So, who are you more of? I would say I'm more like Bruce Wayne. It, to me, really, even though I started on YouTube very early on in my life, it wasn't until 2017 that I was going all in. Like the place I was working, we were having these major, this major restructuring going on. And the group I'd worked with, like everybody kind of flew off in different directions. They got reassigned. Some people got fired. And holy smokes, that created so much anxiety for me. Like I'd always struggle with anxiety in my life. But as an Indian kid, I always thought anxiety was good because it forced me to take action in life. If I'm worried about my exams, I got to study. Otherwise, I'm going <laughs> to That's fail. the father in you speaking. <laughs> right. And, and then it wasn't until once I started working, I would worry so much about my job. I guess I'm a perfectionist. Back then, I'm, I'm much better than I am now. It was just like if something went wrong on a project, I'd take it really personally. And I would think it's a reflection of who I am. And that created so many sleepless nights and anxiety. And in 2017, when people are getting fired in front of you and you am I next? You wonder that. And my wife and I were trying to have a kid at that point in time. Whenever I go through this stuff, 20 things are happening in my life at once. And I was so sick of being helpless. For somebody who has anxiety, it's like the worst thing is not having control. And I was like, I want to take back the control in my life. And I was going all in on YouTube. And in some respects, I stopped caring about the outcomes at work and I felt so much better. And once my YouTube channel started to grow, I kind of started having like a rock and roll attitude at work. And it was kind of fun because people didn't know I had this thing, but like I start dressing a bit differently at work. I started speaking out more because I, I think I needed somebody to just reinforce that I was good at my job, but I had to go through those horrible stuff to realize it. That's interesting. I, I read a lot about entrepreneurs and business owners and how they get started. And so many people have gotten started out of necessity right? So it's it's that survival, do or die thing that drives you. And then organically, you tend to find the things that you're really good at or really passionate about. And then that's what fuels growth. Yeah. And the thing that some people ask me, like, why do you just keep, why do you keep going to your day job? And being in the space that I am, it's a really lonely place at the same time. You're a creator, you have this kind of relationship with your audience, but you don't really know them, right? You only know them as people who send messages or write comments. Whereas my job gives me that maybe not during COVID so much, but when I was going to the office is like, I have that social interaction I need in my life and I'm still using my degree. And so I feel like both of those careers give me some sort of benefit I can't get from the other. Yeah. Are you open with your coworkers, your engineering coworkers about what you do as your side hustle? No, a couple of them know now. It was funny. Uh, actually, a couple of weeks ago, my 
boss wanted me to do this instruction manual for this new program we built. And he's like, just write, write it up. And I said, why don't I just do a, a video of it? And he's like, you know how to do video editing, Sid? I said, I think I can probably do it. <laughs> so I, I make this amazing. If you've seen my videos, I do the video the exact same way I do my YouTube videos. And the guy was like blown away. And uh, I said, yeah, I was joking. I was like, yeah, I should just quit this job and become like a YouTuber full time. And they're like, yeah, you really should. And then <laughs> I showed them my silver play button. And they're like, you have a YouTube channel? I was like, yeah. It was like, I've been doing this for a couple of years. So I've been, I've told the people I work with immediately, but other people like don't know. I feel like it's kind of cool because if I ever do want to retire, it would just, wouldn't it be cool just like come out of the bloom? Like, oh yeah, I've been doing this for 10 years and I quit. Hell yeah. My friend Drew, co-host on another podcast I do, talks about this idea of you want to retire into your passion. Yeah, that's right. What do mom and dad think? They're really proud of it. They go and show. Sorry, no, hang on. Oh, what did mom and dad is. think? How did you first tell them about this at the beginning? I'm sure um, they're proud now. It's successful. Well, it's funny. My dad was doing my taxes <laughs> for a long time. He doesn't do them anymore, thankfully. But when they heard that you can make money, they were all in it, right? They're like, oh, that's great. How do I do it now? Uh, <laughs> and now they're super proud of it when I tell them how much it's grown. And my dad for a long time was watching all my videos. But I wish I had cool parents growing up in the sense that my parents never introduced me to rock and roll growing up. Uh, my parents were listening to Indian music and the most rock was like the Bee Gees and the Carpenters. Yeah. But I want to pause that because I actually think that's why I found it. Oh, really? Because your parents didn't listen to it, Remen? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Be it Rod Stewart oh, or the yeah. Beatles, that was all that uh, the only American music played. It, but otherwise, it was like Budgeons and Bollywood, uh, yeah, Budgeons or religious songs on full blast. That's all I... And yeah, it was funny. My dad would... Even when we went to malls, my dad would sing guzzles. And like, I would pretend not to know who he was. So. <laughs> 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 but yeah, I never... I gotta, say, I gotta say something though. So now, I don't sing guzzles, love songs, Sharon, and Budgeons uh-huh. or religious songs. I don't do that. But I do... I will sing the sweater song or I will sing... Or I right. will do the ripping beats to Led Zeppelin or the Lone Ranger around my daughter. So I catch myself. That's what I'm doing to my daughter now. It's just, it's not budgets or guzzles. But do you find your daughter's like interested in rock or she's got her own music? Oh my God, dude, you, you weren't on my email list. So get this because of the terrible slash awesome slash terrible movies, trolls, trolls Two, and sing. My daughter has us playing these soundtracks all the time. There's tons of rock covers, be it Aussie, Barracuda, stuff like that. And so I'm like, I can't listen to these anymore, honey. I'm going <laughs> to let you listen to some actual stuff, right? So I've got the old mix CDs I made for my daughter. So, and I actually just sent an email out to everyone about girl rock bands. And so I've been playing The Breeders. I've been playing Blondie. Did, I've been yeah. playing The Cardigans. I did, a, I did a story on The Breeders and I did one just on The Donnas, which hasn't come out yet. But yeah, I've been listening to a lot of girl rock bands lately and it takes me back to my childhood. <laughs> The point is, she's into it. And that's the crazy thing. And I'm like, that's oh, really awesome. Okay, you might not be into comic books yet. But I'm gonna like just pour lighter fluid on this while I, while like the moment is hot because if I can brainwash you, it's gonna be. Yeah, great. See, I'm going to know my daughter like because like I, I'm driving her around to the grandparents' house or wherever we're driving to, and if it's just me and it's not my wife in the car, we're listening to Metallica, Guns N' Roses, and like <laughs> nice. Danzig nice. and the Misfits. So I'm hoping that kind of brainwashes her into into doing that. And we're already talking about like, oh, do we want her to take piano lessons or guitar lessons? And I'm like, we should just ask her. Do you want to play guitar? You want to play bass, drums, or piano, and see what she wants to do because yeah i want to hopefully she takes up an interest in music early on so back to mom and dad though what did they think i think they kind of knew i i got into rock music because of my brother who was seven years older so he was listening to pearl jam and he had 10 and never mind and use your illusion one and two and so i kind of got my first taste of rock music and much music is like our version of mtv in canada and once they started seeing how much it was growing they were like oh we're so proud of you it's so amazing you built this we tell all our friends and stuff so yeah they're they're really proud of it but i don't think they really understand the stories i tell because they're not really into rock and roll or anything like that but they're pretty proud but but, i mean but the rock is i hate to say the gimmick but that's the hook yeah you're telling these documentary style stories of these insane it's not like the rock and roll lifestyle but the episode you just did on the gin blossoms it's a story of depression anxiety falling out with friends so you're putting on a documentary it's like a this american life for rock yeah it's true and it's yeah it's rock is the vehicle but it talks about stuff you do within your normal life and it doesn't have to be a rock star to relate to it right yeah i mean we it's kind of cool we're we're teaming up with an organization that deals a lot with mental health for musicians like in the coming months and yeah i mean we try to a lot of these stories in rock kind of you know touch on those themes but we try to tell it in like the most respectful way because like i mean i've dealt with my fair share of stuff and i still deal with it 
my life. So I can, in some respects, you get to know some of these people just by reading their story and what they're going through and you can kind of relate to it. Whereas if you haven't went through that stuff in your life, maybe it's harder to relate to it. But it's kind of funny when I read the comments, a lot of people deal with the same stuff in their life. It kind of feels like when you're going through all this stuff in your life, whether it's depression or anxiety, it kind of feels like you're the only one dealing with it, but it kind of gives you hope that other people can relate to it as well. Is that the feedback that you've gotten from your audience? Yeah, I mean, the the thing that I think people really like is that they can relate to it, but also it's very nostalgic. I get a lot of comments from people saying, oh, I saw this guy's like Jim Blossom's like 1994 on tour. Or, you know, I'm from Tempe, Arizona as well, which is where the band originally came from. So I get a variety of different things from people. It's either people who like remember that time or people who sometimes work with those people and to just like people being fans of their music. Or a lot of people tell me they, they like the stories, but they may not even like the music necessarily. They find the stories are interesting enough. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to come back to your parents a little bit because there's just a lot of interesting threads. And I think some of the stories you tell are are just, they strike a chord to me. Your parents weren't traditional Indian parents. (laughs) I mean, the way they came (laughs) over, they're divorced. And then can you talk about kind of what Indian culture for you was or wasn't growing up in Canada because of that? Yeah, I'm the product of my parents' second marriage. So like I have a brother from my mom's first marriage. My mom got, they had an arranged marriages early on. My mom got married at 18 and my dad got married, I think a little bit older. And then my sister's from my dad's first marriage. So to me, Indian culture was just, okay, you eat a certain kind of food and okay, my parents speak in Hindi to me, but man, we have prayers sometimes or we celebrate certain holidays, but it was just basically that. My parents never drilled it into my head that you have to act a certain way or you have to listen to a certain kind of music all the time. It was really just about it was more superficial for me, Indian culture in terms of like, yeah, your food and that kind of stuff. And I didn't grow up in a religious household. I think my dad really tried to tell me and my mom just like try to be a good person at the end of the day. And they never drilled it like you're Indian first or like you're a person first. And you just happen to be Indian because that's where we're originally from. And the only other thing was like, oh, you have a lot of family members around the world and you have a big family. And they always, in our culture, a lot of Asian cultures, family is a big thing. And they always remind me that family is the only one who really cares about you. That also was another realization I had going to work is they try to tell you that, okay, we're all a family at work, but I kind of saw through that. I knew it wasn't because to me, I'm easily replaceable as the next guy. And the only person who really care, the only person who's going to look out for you is yourself and your family. And those are the only people who really have your best interests out there was that realization, unfortunately, very late in my life. I had a friend's dad tell me once, my best friend's dad, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an artist or an architect or graphic designer. And he was, and he's like, why? I was like, well, all my friends say I can do it. And he's like, your friends aren't going to tell you what you need to hear. Your family will. That's absolutely <laughs> they're, true. Yeah. They're going to tell you the uncomfortable truths. They'll give you the praise when you need it, but they're going to call you out more than your friends ever will. Oh yeah. My wife's really good for bouncing ideas off of, cause she's a creative person. She's like a marketing background and she went to art school. Whereas I I don't come from that background, but even my parents, I always like to bounce ideas off them or my in-laws because you're right. They will tell you the hard, cold truth of what you should do. And whereas if you ask your friends, right, they'll just, you know, sometimes tell you what you want to hear. So your wife and family, did your mom and dad have expectations for who they thought you should marry? It was so funny growing up. My parents never had a lot of East Indian friends because we didn't grow up first in a town that had a lot of Indian people. Even, but when they moved to the city, they don't go to like a, I don't know what Indian cultures are like in other cities, but I know in where I live, they have a lot of gatherings before COVID. They have a lot of banquet hall celebrations. My parents were never part of that community. A lot of their friends are Caucasian or are they Southeast Asian. 
my parents were actually relieved when I met my wife. They're like, oh, we're so glad you didn't marry another Indian woman. Why? <laughs> because they didn't want to deal with the in-laws and all the politics of it. I mean, even within my parents' own family, like there's a lot of internal politics and stuff. And I think they were relieved. And it's kind of funny. I actually like some, some days I like my in-laws better than my own parents. It's funny. Our parents, they hang out by themselves with us not being there. They're really close. And so my parents were really relieved. And my brother, he's the same story. He married a girl from East Texas who was born and raised there. So my parents were relieved in that sense. And my parents never told me, you have to marry this kind of person. But I have a lot of Indian friends who, who went through that stuff. A friend of mine married a girl from Fiji who's like technically of Indian origin, but like to his parents, it was like a big deal that, that he didn't marry somebody they chose. Well, yeah, because it's if it's not the region of India and the yeah. caste and the yeah. family, you're actually better off just completely ejecting and going out of the race, right? Yeah. And it was funny too, like growing up, when I grew up in Edson, the only girls I was surrounded by was <laughs> Caucasian girls. So that's who I was right. attracted to. And I've always been attracted to like, everybody's got their type. It was funny when I came to do my university, I'd meet a lot of Indian girls and I just... We just say, like I said, I was grew up on a different side of the tracks. I feel like I could relate more to Caucasian people than I could to my own people. And growing up also in Edson, being attracted to Caucasian girls, that's what I was attracted to. And that's plain and simple as I see it. And it was the same with my brother too, right? Well, yeah, I, I remember getting into that, not quite argument with my parents, but, and I don't know if it was a winning argument that I'd make, but when I started to date and bring home non-Indian girls mostly white girls, mom and dad would be like, well, why not someone Indian? I was like, where were the Indian girls growing up? Where are they in college? It's They're not around. I'm not in this deep community. You brought us to this part of the country where we're not in this big South Asian community. Sharon, I actually want to ask the question to you because you dated Chinese and non-Chinese, but you have siblings and, did the, and you're in a non-Chinese relationship with your husband. Right. Yep. Uh, are your siblings, where did that net out with them? My sister has ended up with a very, very Chinese guy. <laughs> the counterbalance. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, it's, I think my parents know his parents from, you know, shared shared associations or Arranged but not arranged. arranged. Yeah. Ordained by the universe. Yeah. And, and, and um, what's even more scary is he has the same last name as she does. And I'm like, are you sure he's not related <laughs> to us? Please make sure that we are not second cousins. And she's like, shut up. And I'm like, but this is really important. <laughs> It's a big country. So, it is a big country. And <laughs> Lee is a very common last name. But I remember when I was dating and I'd meet, because meet, I was dating a lot of, I mean, that sounds terrible for me to say. I was dating a lot of guys. I wasn't, but I was dating primarily Chinese guys. When I met another Lee, I was like, oh no, that just felt wrong. Randomly, when we went to Iceland years ago, uh, and we're talking to one of the guides that we did this glacier hike with, because it's such a small country, she's like, yeah, when you date, there's a website where you go punch in the other person's name just to make sure you're not too related. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's actually one of the first places that we want to go like when COVID is like over is Iceland. And I'll have to talk to you about that like off the air. What's, that? What's like going there? Yeah, I want to ask a question about your wife. What did she think about this project? Because it's a pretty big leap. It's taking a lot of time from home and work. Yeah, absolutely. I had went through a couple different YouTube channels. Like I first started out actually as a dating coach. That was like the first business I started when I was looking to start a business because I met my wife online and I used to write for a video game website where I'd review games. So I had a lot of experience writing and I thought I was a good writer. And I figured I could probably write dating coach, dating profiles for men and women. And I did that and I had seminars and I made some money doing that, but it was so draining to do that every weekend and hear about people's problems and a lot of which I think were self-inflicted when it came to like the dating world. And then I started YouTube and I went through about three or four channels before I finally settled on rock and roll true stories. And what I were the started, other ones? Like what was the gist of the other ones? One was rhythm gaming. Another reason I got into rock music was like because of Guitar Hero and Rock Band and all those games. And that was too niche. And then I did one which was like just about Guns N' Roses, which was about 50,000 subs or so. And uh, it grew to a good size, but it's- You can only go so far, right? You can only go so far. And then a month before my daughter was born, I'm like, I had this great idea. Let me just do rock and roll true stories. I'll just put up a couple of videos and see how it does. And I kind of came back after a couple months and it just blew up. But honestly, I was telling my wife this yesterday, none of this would be possible without her help. It took a lot of time and she was so good to give me the space to be able to do this because she believed in me. And we're both like entrepreneurs and I think she understood where I was coming from. Like just seeing me struggle with work, 
that she allowed me to do that and she saw it blow up and now she's come on board and helped us out and helped us grow a lot. She even does some of the writing for some of the videos as well. She's instrumental to the channel's growth. Like I wouldn't be able to do it without her support. That's super sweet. Where do you want this to go? What's the dream of this pursuit? That's part of the fun, right? I don't, I feel like sometimes I don't know where I want it to go. I just, some days I'm like, I wish I could just sell it and be done with it. And just like really live that way because it's like a really demanding channel in the sense that I'm usually six weeks ahead of my schedule in terms of where I'm producing stuff, but it's also having to come up with ideas and be creative. And do I feel creative today? I don't feel creative. It's just like you struggle with this a little bit and then having to come up with great content every single time and growing your team. So it's like, I don't really know where I see it in a year. Maybe I'm doing less videos. That's maybe where I see it. Or maybe we're writing a book about some cool rock and roll true stories. We were talking about maybe getting a book deal and doing that. But I think that's part of the journey is like, I never thought in the first place it would ever blow up to be this big in a million years. Like, I don't even like listening to the sound of my own voice, let alone having hundreds (laughs) of thousands of people listen to me tell stories. So I think part of the journey is just seeing where it goes and just keep try to enjoy it as much as I can. I think at the beginning I was working a lot of hours and it was burning the candle from both ends. So like during COVID, I've been trying to block out time to actually live a normal life and do stuff that I enjoy that doesn't have any kind of reward or anything like that. Yeah, I found with this show and the other ones I'm working on and some of the other stuff I'm cooking, it's I enjoy doing the work, but the thing that I actually get anxiety on is, okay, where is this going? What's the point? Is this making an impact for whatever the objective or the mission of the thing is? Yeah, it can be difficult because yeah, once I'm in that creative space, it's so much fun to do. And I nerd out over just the weirdest stuff. I find the Gin Blossoms video, for example, I found some really old LA Times articles from like 1992. I get so excited when I find that because it's a treasure trove of information. But then sometimes I'm writing another article and just I just don't feel it. And it'll be interesting to see where we are a year from now, like how much we think we'll grow. And my wife sometimes says, oh, maybe we'll see if we even have the channel in a couple of years. Dealing with all the copyright stuff is a headache too. So that's why I say sometimes I just want to get rid of it and just relax and live life a bit more. Yeah. It's interesting, but because the media is also changing, right? The whole landscape of yeah, like how YouTube are may not be a, yeah, YouTube may not even be the dominant form of media consumption in ten years. For all we know, like now there's TikTok, there's Instagram, there's all this other ways that people are getting their content out there. So it's you're trying to focus on what's working for you now, but are you also planning for the future? We're on some of those social media platforms, but some of them we're not. So we're yeah, it's trying. like you you want to stay focused, but at the same time, you don't necessarily want to be a one trick pony. Because you could be, you want to focus on making the best content, right? But yeah. And most, and most of our audience is 35 to 55, 90% men. And it's like, are those kinds of people going to be on TikTok? Probably not. But you can go into TikTok and try to get like a younger demographic who maybe doesn't know about your content and try to get it out there. Yeah. But then again, the amount of effort expended. We, yeah, we, exactly. we absolutely should geek out uh, offline about work stuff. Yeah, I, I know. It's difficult because you only have 24 hours in a day, right? So you have to devote, and plus I'm working my other job too. So it's like, you have to devote only limited time to it. So I have a very important question for you and we've covered a lot, but if you were to go back to yourself from many years ago, you can pick a specific time. Maybe it's that fifth grade time. The guy, a little kid wearing the Pantera shirt. Yeah. The little kid <laughs> in, yeah. in a town of 8,000 people, which when you said that I was, I think my apartment building in New York City had more people than it's that. It's so funny because I, <laughs> my first job out of university was in a town of 6,600 people up yeah. north. And to yeah. me, that's a decent sized town. <laughs> so it's like, oh my God, it's so tiny. But my parents yeah. tell me like villages in India are bigger than that. I'm like, I just can't picture that. Yeah, it's crazy. But if you were to go back to your younger self and give yourself advice, what would you tell them? I think the best piece of advice I can give myself or even for anybody who's starting out in life is just to believe in yourself. And that I think sometimes we're our own worst critic. I used to really get down on myself about whether I was capable of doing something or having to prove myself. I think, yeah, the first one is just you're more than capable of it. And second of all, who cares what other people think? That's the two pieces of advice. Once I started feeling that, especially at work, oh, it was so nice to go into work and just not have any anxiety. Like I haven't had any work anxiety for like three, four years because I walk in there and I know I'm so capable of doing my job and that I have nothing to worry about. Like I can take on anything that comes at me. This past summer, I got laid off back in May 
And they said, well, Sid, you can collect, we call it CERB. It's like a employment insurance here, or you can go work construction. And I said, well, I'll rather go work construction. I haven't done it in 10 years, but I'll go project manage some construction projects. And I did that. And I, I was surprised at how well I did it, considering I was doing the channel at the same time and being on site. So I think had that happened to me four or five years ago, I wouldn't have been capable of doing it or had the belief in myself to do that. Oh, I think it's because you're stretching yourself constantly with the work. Yeah, it's also going through all that horrible stuff in 2017. I kind of realized like, okay, just do your best. And if things fail, so what they fail. Like you just, as long as you can hold your head up high and say, I did that, then that's all that matters at the end of the day. It's no different than putting a video out on my channel that doesn't get a ton of views, but I can say like, that was a pretty cool story. I'm glad I covered it. Yeah, absolutely. I got a really great piece of advice from one of Raman's friends, actually, when I was considering selling my company. And he said to me, Sharon this isn't going to be the last company you build. And I was like, whoa, because so far it's really been the only one I've built that was worth selling. <laughs> and so it's just, it's the realization that there's, there's just so much more ahead and there, therefore, yeah, so much more opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Like I was talking to a person I know and I was even now at my age, I'm contemplating retirement. And I can see our parents' eyes are rolling into the back of their head. It's so funny because my dad, my dad didn't start drinking until his first day of engine, like working as an engineer. And he was just so miserable that he just like, he retired early because he couldn't take it anymore. And I asked my friend and I said, how am I going to know when I'm ready to just call it quits? And he's like, oh, trust me, you'll know. And I, I feel like I haven't gotten there yet but I'm dreaming of it. And I have this grand vision in my head of how I'm going to call it quits. But I mean, you're right. There's like so much ahead in the journey still that I don't even know where it's going to take me. Sid, this has been such a fun conversation. And with only a few minutes left, we got to move to something called speed round. But I don't know, Sharon, do you think he's ready? Sid, I think you're ready. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Sid, what's something about you that, that no one expects? Other than the fact that you have your YouTube channel. <laughs> I don't know if we talked about it, but I used to live in, I lived in Africa for a couple of years in Ethiopia during a civil war. That was kind of interesting. My dad was working on an international development project back in the late 80s. So we lived in this really small town called Diridawa. I don't know how big it is, but he was doing like a water supply project. And we were there from like 1988 to 1990. For talking about music terms, it was before we left. Hair metal was really popular. And then when we came back, MC Hammer was really popular. Yeah. So uh, we lived there for a couple of years. And it's funny, my mom is used to growing up in metropolitan cities like New York and Houston. So it was like she was miserable living there. But my dad loved it because they treated him like a king because he was a foreigner. He's the water man. Yeah. Yeah. He's the water man. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'd say that's probably people are surprised when I say that because they think, oh, you live in South Africa or you were in Kenya. It's like, no, we were in Ethiopia during like one of the worst times in its history. What is a book, movie, television show, or for you, I'm going to change this question a little, or maybe a song with characters that you can relate to? I think it's kind of funny. I love all these bands. It's not necessarily because the lyrics stand out to me just because the sound is pleasant to me, but there's one song that really stands out because I feel like it's a perfect summarization of life in general. It's Tom Petty learning to fly. I think that song is really heartfelt yeah. for me. Does that yeah. speaks to just about life in general? And yeah, it was, I regret we could have went and saw Tom Petty the last time he played here. It's like a Sunday night and I didn't have a chance. To, I said, I'll have to work tomorrow. So I'll maybe see him next time. But yeah, that song yeah. always has a special place in my heart. His passing I mean, it was one of the more significant things for me in the before times, right? It hit me a lot harder than I thought it would. Because I was like, oh, he's got another 10, 15. And then he just wasn't there anymore. It's kind of crazy, too, because you look at Tom Petty and you're like, this is a guy who really has his his life together. Because, you know, he's the music industry is not easy. It's really difficult. And it shows like that kind of stuff can hit anybody, no matter how good it looks on the outside of their life. So, I mean, yeah, I was shocked as probably anybody was that that happened. Yeah, because I feel like he's like such a great songwriter and such an icon. Yeah, I was really bummed out when when the news came out. But I, I do want to ask the original part of the question too, because I am curious about your take. Are there are there any books or films or TV shows that have characters you relate to? Oh yeah, I'm sure both of you probably watch The Office. I'm guessing. Yeah, I have heard yeah. of it. <laughs> yeah, The Office. Yeah, the US version. I, I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of the UK version, but I really love Michael Scott's character. And not because he's just funny, but because he taught something my dad was always really harping on, which is if you know engineers, engineers are not the most social people or they have the most social skills. But whenever I'd see my dad, he was so good at dealing with people that I would never, ever see another engineer like that. And 
if you look at Michael Scott, all the flaws he's got, he's a great salesman because he knows how to connect with people. And uh, does I, think he? That, <laughs> I think he does. Like when I think, and not necessarily his employees, but when it comes to his clients, he knows how to connect with people. There's a couple episodes that kind of have these themes of the old way of doing things versus technology. And uh, I think his skills as a salesman, I think are sometimes forgotten by people, but yeah, I definitely relate to his character. He's got a lot of flaws, but he's great at connecting with people and selling them something on an experience. Yeah. And then books, I would say, not necessarily characters, but one of the most important books I think I've probably ever read in my life is How to Win Friends and Influence People yeah. by Dale Carnegie. Yeah, I re- it's a classic. There's a newer version about like in the digital age, they call it, which, yeah, that's, we used to do a lot of public engagement when I was a project manager. We do all these major infrastructure projects and you deal with the public because you're doing this work in front of their house or whatnot. And yeah, I mean, I was thankful that I was reasonably good at dealing with those those kinds of situations. So I feel like dealing, reading that book probably prepared me for it as well. What is your favorite mom dish? So I think my favorite mom dish, I don't think it's an Indian dish. I think it's a, it's a dish my mom got from Ethiopia. It's called shorba. It's this soup. It's like a chicken, ginger. I think there's garlic in it too. It's like a Ethiopian soup my mom would make whenever I was sick. And even sometimes it's got noodles in it too. And whenever we still go to her house, like pre-COVID, she'd always cook it for us. That's one of the few reminders I have of living there because I was so young at that time. Yeah. But it's always a comfort food for me. Yeah, I'd say probably that. What's your least favorite food? It's funny because everybody I talk to loves it. I hate paneer so much. Man, we are literally related. I am. Yeah, I, my wife you. My wife loves it. My parents love it. I, I just can't. Indian people it. shouldn't be making cheese. I'm sorry. It's just terrible. It's just the, the texture. It kind of reminds me of tofu in a way, but just worse. My mom used to force feed it to me when I was a kid. <laughs> so yeah, I just, that's the one thing I can't stand eating. I'll usually eat anything else but that. <laughs> I'm a fan of paneer, but I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like my parents don't make it very often, but when they do, I try to avoid it. Like the yeah. plague. Yeah. Totally understand. Who's someone out there that you would want to interview for a podcast? Living or dead? It could be either. Yes. <laughs> yes to both. Oh, you know what? I would think it would be so fascinating to have a conversation with like Freddie Mercury. I think somebody asked me this question. I screwed it up the first time. I think Freddie Mercury would be somebody I'd want to interview. Just he's just a fascinating person, especially just his background growing up. Yeah. And just the music he wrote. He's just such a, one of my favorite singers of all time. Yeah, absolutely. Probably Freddie Mercury, I would think. So last question, Sid, what does being a modern minority mean to you? I think being a modern minority to me is sure you have this exterior shell that people see, whether it's the color of your skin or your accent. But I think it, it means really just doing whatever makes you happy in life and following your passion. I think that's kind of what my life has kind of been like. I originally took that traditional path of going to school, becoming an engineer, but just realizing that the economy is changing and life seems uncertain. So I asked myself what I was passionate about. And one of those things was rock and roll. And my next question is, well, can you make a business out of it and give yourself that life that you really want where you're not relying on other people? And I was thankfully able to answer that question. So to me, it's, you may have all these exterior factors that people look at you first, but when they start to dig a little deeper, they find that you're doing something you're passionate about. That's fantastic, man. Well, that sounds great. Keep doing what you're doing because it gives hope to the rest of us. <laughs> and I, I just you know I love what? your take. And I, I no, I love the candid take that you do with your work. It's funny because whenever I talk to people about, I don't even tell most people I meet during the day that I'm a YouTuber. It just kind of seems weird to me. If I'm a content creator or something. I mostly tell people I'm an engineer. And my wife and I talk to this, talk about this with our daughter when she starts going to school and you start meeting the parents and the teachers. We're going to tell her we have a YouTube channel or how's that going to work? So we're like, because I feel like all these kids nowadays want to be YouTube famous and TikTok famous, yeah. and Instagram. And to me, don't I don't want to encourage that, right? I don't want to encourage that. I think 20 years ago, I think generally people would be famous for some sort of talent. But at the same time, I tell people like if somebody like me can have success on YouTube, there's hope for everybody. I'm not the most interesting person to listen to, at least I think. And you just have to but be- you're telling st- But you're finding narratives and telling stories. Yeah, you're finding narratives and telling stories. But yeah, I mean, I think- it's difficult, right? I think people want to be famous for no reason. And people also have a misconception of what it's like to work on YouTube. Before I told my coworkers what I did, they would tell me what they thought YouTube was like. They think you put up a video and you make a million dollars on one video or something, then you're set for life. And it does it's a grind. It's a really hard life, but it's also enjoyable at the same time. So it's like anything passion you follow in life. And you're making something. And I think that it's not about 
it's not about the fame. In fact, you want the work to be famous, not the person. Yeah, I want the work to be famous. I don't want, I mean, there was times when we did the Guns N' Roses channel. We went out to LA to see Guns N' Roses and it was kind of weird. Like some people knew who I was because I would do interviews and like people show my face. I hated that part of it. That's why I kind of like just having the voice and then people, I'm just a conduit to tell a story. I'm not a YouTube personality per se, I would say. Well, your personality. So. Yeah. You are. You are definitely a personality. Yeah. <laughs> Sid, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. I still carry within me the little girl who lived in Boiling Springs. Someone who is often scared, often wanting to disappear, and hungry. (laughs) I never left that little girl behind. I carry her with me and... Part of that is what made me want to be a writer because I thought it would be something that you could escape into, sort of hibernate. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.